You've heard me tell this story before, but as I was studying for the message this week, it kind of came back to me again. So if I've told it before, laugh like it's the first time you've heard it. Would you do that for me this morning? So, so there's this, there's this uh, uh, kindergarten teacher in our Sunday School Connect, and, and the teacher has all the boys and girls sitting around and, and says to the boys and girls, what's small and brown with a brushy tail, lives in a tree, and eats nuts? And the boys and girls just sit there, and nobody says a word. Finally, one little girl raises her hand, and the teacher says, Honey, do you know, do you know who that is? And, and the little girl says, Well, it sounds like a squirrel, but it must be Jesus. <laughs> because when you're in kindergarten Sunday School Connect group, the answer to every question is what? It's Jesus. So, uh, so, so that's, that's that. So, so let me ask you this question today. Who is the Son of God? As evidenced by his life, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Who is that person? Jesus. Yeah, some of you are a little timid to answer that. It sounds like Jesus, but yeah, it's, uh, it is Jesus. Absolutely. But in this day and time, just like throughout all history, even to the day of Jesus, there are those who even when confronted with everything the Scripture says, and even those who are eyewitnesses to some of the events in Jesus' life, they saw all of it and they still said, No, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to believe that He is the Son of God. I'm not going to believe that He's the miracle worker. I'm not going to believe that He was raised from the dead. So, so even today, with all that evidence, there are those who say no. So we're working our way through the Gospel of John. And we're taking one chapter each week, and we're highlighting part of, of what the Bible says about Jesus, how it identifies Him, and what it, what it teaches us, and what it means for us, not just in the context of learning about the Bible, but what it means for me right now where I am in my life. And so this week, we're on John chapter 5. I'd invite you to take your Bible and turn there with me this morning. We're in John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, we see that Jesus is presented as the Savior. He's presented as the Savior by way of a message, a miracle, and the explanation of the meaning of that. So throughout the fifth chapter of John, we see this played out. Also in the fifth chapter of John, we're introduced in the Gospel of John to the conflict that came about in Jesus' life. We we all know probably overall that that the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, were in opposition and conflict with Jesus and ultimately it led to the cross. In the Gospel of John, that really comes to the forefront here in John chapter 5. As Jesus outwardly and openly in the first time in John really uh, confronts uh, and and projects himself as the promised Savior and and with the opposition of the Jews that were there. Now, Now, Jesus was very clear in what he was claiming. There, there are those that say, well, Jesus really didn't mean to come across as the Savior or as the Son of God. He just was kind of a, a good teacher and people started saying that about him. Well, that's not true. The Bible makes it very clear that from the very beginning, Jesus projected and presented himself as the promised Messiah. For example, in John chapter 5, there are several places. In, in verse 17, Jesus presented himself as equal in works or in the deeds as what God did. We know God as the creator, God as the sustainer, God as the healer. All these things are true. And then in uh, verse 17, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus is saying about himself, I'm doing the same things that my Father is doing. I'm doing the works of God. That's what Jesus said about himself. 
In verse 18, he presented himself as equal with God. Who is equal with God but God himself? And in in verse 18, it says this, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. If you think about this, we're in John chapter 5. The crucifixion doesn't take place in John through all the way several more chapters down the road and quite a bit of time on the calendar uh, a couple of years. But, But here we see even early in the ministry of Jesus, because he was presenting himself as the Savior, the Jewish leaders began very early to try to kill him. So he says they were trying all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. That's what Jesus was saying about himself. You know, people say about Jesus, you have to decide how you're going to take him. There's only three options that you can take about Jesus. He was either a liar... In other words, he made stuff up intentionally. He called himself the Son of God when he knew he wasn't. He was either a liar or secondly, he was a lunatic. He was saying all these things about being God, thinking that he really was God, but he really wasn't. He just had a mental condition. He was a lunatic. So he was either a liar or a lunatic or the only other option is that he is Lord. He is who he said he is. He was who he said he was. He still is who he says he is. And that's, the, that's the, 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 the teaching of the Bible. It's the teaching of this church and all who call themselves believers in Christ. That Jesus is indeed God in human form. That's who he is. In verse 22, he presented himself as equal in judgment with God. Only God judges we all have to stand before God to give an account. Jesus said in John five twenty two, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. This will play in a little bit later in our message today. But understand this, that Jesus is the one who ultimately we all must stand before and give an account. And He will pronounce judgment over us. It's not the preacher. Say amen to that. Amen. <laughs> a, little, a little, very, yeah, very, very enthusiastic down there, Kimmy. <laughs> It's not the preacher, it's not the deacon, it's not, it's not the people down the road, it's not the TV preacher, it's not, it is Jesus who ultimately we must give an account to. Then, then notice in verse 23, he presented himself as equally deserving of honor as God. This is serious. Is he saying, I am God? He says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so so these things that Jesus was saying to the Jewish leaders stirred them up to the point where they were saying right then, if not before, and certainly going forward, we've got to get this guy out of here. We've got to kill this guy. So that's the context of what was going on here in John chapter 5. Now now let's let's kind of springboard into the... I'm I'm, I'm presenting the message first. We're going to talk about the message Jesus gave, the miracle that was performed, and then the meaning of that message. The, the scripture starts with the miracle being first. I'm going to go ahead and talk about the message, and then we'll get to the miracle. So starting in verses 19 to 25, we find the message. The miracle was performed. Jesus healed a man. He's confronting the, the, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders and teachers. But he does so with this message. And the message is that he is the Savior. Jesus is saying, I am the Savior. So if you look in verse, in verse 19, Jesus is saying that He only does what the Father does. That He is only carrying out what God the Father has sent Him to earth to do. 
He's saying, it's not what I want to do, guys. I'm here to carry out the will of God. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. When Jesus performs a miracle, it's because God is a miracle-performing God. When Jesus teaches a lesson, it's because God is a, is a, a lesson-teaching God. When Jesus goes here and goes there, He's indicating this is where God is. This is what God is doing. This is what God is saying. Jesus is saying all these things about Himself. He is the Savior. It's important that we grasp and understand that. That's the message of the Bible. But also notice that the Son is the Savior. The Son is the Savior. Verses 20 to 23 speaks of the cross. It speaks of the resurrection. And it speaks of salvation. Things that would only come up later in the ministry of Jesus. But He alludes to those even now. Starting in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater things than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. You see the words there on the screen. Let me point out a couple of things that are important here that that you'll see. Down there towards the end where it says, Greater works than these will He, that's God, show Him, that's Jesus. The greater works that take place will culminate in the cross. And Jesus here is pointing to the fact that down the road in His ministry, there's coming a day when He will go to the cross. And the cross is not only the greater work than healing a man, but it is the greatest work of all because the cross brings our salvation. And so, so we see that there. We see the, we see the cross. We also see uh, 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 the resurrection. Uh, greater works than these will He show Him. Uh, that's because... Uh, 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 I got, got ahead of myself. I'm sorry. So, so greater works than these will He show Him. That is uh, the cross. So that you may marvel. Notice that line there. You may marvel. So that you, that, that's us. That's, that's the people he was talking to in the day, the Pharisees, so that you may marvel. When you see the cross, when you, when you hear the message of the cross, you will marvel. What does it mean to marvel? On one hand, it means to stand in awe of. When you see the cross and understand the significance of the Son of God being on the cross in our place and for our sins, you will be in awe of that. That God himself came to earth and went to the cross so that you and I could have the forgiveness of our sins. To be in awe of and ultimately to believe. To say, I believe that that's who Jesus is. As as they just sang just a few minutes ago, I believe that you're the healer. I believe that you're more than enough. I believe that you're all I need. All those things are true. And ultimately, I believe that you're the Savior who died on the cross in my place and for my sins. So we marvel by standing in awe and by embracing and believing that. So we see the cross and we see, salva- we see uh, uh, belief. And then in verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Notice there in verse 21, The Father raises the dead and gives them life. There we see resurrection. There we see life after this life. There we see that this life is not all there is. If you're hoping for something better in the future after this life is over, say amen this morning. <laughs> I'm hoping for something better. Life is great here on earth, by the way. But there's more. Because after I pass on from this life, there is a resurrection. And there is an eternity. So we see the resurrection and then we see salvation. 
This is why it's so important that Jesus is the judge. You see that last phrase there, the Son gives life to whom He will. It is through the Son, it is through the Savior, it is through Jesus that life comes. Life comes through Jesus because Jesus died on the cross and was buried and was raised from the dead. So that's where we see salvation coming in. Notice also verses 22 and 23. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. There we see that Jesus is the way of salvation. The way of salvation is not by performing a religious deed. The way of salvation is not by being a part of the right group. The way of salvation is not by giving money into an offering. The way of salvation is not acting in some super religious way. Any of those things may be fine and good and well, but none of those things make us right with God. It is only through Jesus, only through belief in Him. Notice, uh, again, verse 24 and 25, because here we see that salvation has come. This salvation that, it, that comes through Jesus is now available. And Jesus is announcing again in the Gospel of John. He's already done it a time or two. But here in, in chapter 5, he's announcing again salvation. John five twenty four, a beautiful verse to memorize if you have not done so. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever. Let me pause right there for a second. The word whoever. Do you know whoever means, let me just give you a definition of whoever. Whoever means whoever. Whoever means anybody. Whoever means potentially everybody. The word whoever leaves nobody out. If I were talking today and I said, I've got a a prize up here at the front for all those who are sitting on this side of the gym. That leaves the two other two sides out. But if I said there's a prize up here on the stage for whoever would come get it. Do you know what that means? Everybody in here suddenly knows that could be for me. And so here we see that that whoever means that salvation is available to everybody. The Jew and the Gentile, the rich and the poor, the educated and the uneducated, those who live on the right side of the tracks, those who live on the wrong side of the tracks. Salvation is for everybody. Whoever hears my word, Jesus said, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now, Now grasp the magnitude of what Jesus is saying. He is announcing to the world that salvation is available to any person who would come. To any person who would do what? Who would hear and then believe. Hear and then believe. Hear the message of the gospel and believe it. And again, I would point out to you that coming to Christ, becoming a Christian, having your sins forgiven, has nothing to do with what you can do or what I can do because we can never be good enough. We can never do enough. We can never earn enough. If it is not given to us freely, we can't get it. And so Jesus said, for anybody who will hear and simply believe, that person has eternal life. And he goes on to say, he does not come into judgment but is passed from death to life. Now remember, I said a minute ago, remember that Jesus is the judge. Why is that important? Because here when Jesus announces salvation in John chapter 5 and verse 24, he says judgment is not going to come to that person. This is the judge announcing that those who hear and believe will not come before him in judgment and be condemned, but will be set free and forgiven of their sins. Isn't that good news today? Isn't that good news today? I caught you off guard with that. Isn't that good news today? Amen. 
that salvation is available to all who will simply hear and believe. That's the message of the gospel. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Those who are spiritually dead, those who don't know salvation, those who who are, are not born in the right place or don't have all the right qualifications in an earthly sense, there are those who think they're dead, but they will come to life when they hear and believe the message of the gospel. That's the good news that we have here. And that is the message that Jesus came proclaiming. And it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's recorded in John 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and all the way up through the Gospel of John. It, it is the central message of the Bible. That's why I want to start today by, by reminding you and, 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 and starting with the message Jesus gave. He is the Savior. And everybody who comes to Him in faith and believes will be saved from their sins and saved too eternal life. Now, how do we know that that message is true? A lot of people have a lot of different messages. There are those out there in a religious sense that will tell you, if you'll give them five minutes, they will tell you that if you follow this formula, that you can have eternal life. They'll tell you if you follow these five steps, that, that everything will be right between you and God. If you go out and climb this mountain, read this book, give this money, perform these good deeds, if you do all these things. And so how is that person any different than Jesus who says all you have to do is believe? Well, here's the difference. Jesus not only told his message and proclaimed it, he proved his message. He proved his message by the performing of miracles. In John chapter 5, starting at verse number 1, we have the miracle of Jesus healing a man who had been crippled for 38 years. It might have looked something like this if you watch the screen.
Now that's John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. The story goes on, starting at the end of verse 9 with this. Now that day was the Sabbath, the day the miracle was performed. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath and not lawful for you to take up your bed. Here's a man who's been healed. And they're concerned he's got a mat under his arm. That's what's happening. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus is saying, God is at work. Salvation has come. I'm demonstrating it by performing a miracle of healing a man that everybody knows has been crippled for 38 years. And instead of marveling at the miracle, they were quibbling over the mat. (laughs) So let's talk about the meaning of this. The message Jesus proclaimed, the miracle that he performed, and what it means for you and I. This man that was healed, we're not even told his name, it's not important. But this man that was healed represents all of us in some very important ways. Like this man, all of us are crippled because of our past sin. I don't know if you want to hear that on the first Sunday of the new year or not, but but it's the truth. All of us here are crippled in some form or fashion because of our own past sin and because we live in a world of sin. We live in a world where sin has impacted everything around us and everything about us. Notice, after the man had been healed, Jesus came back to him in verse 14 there, and Jesus said this, Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more. We're not told what sin this man had committed some 38 years ago, but something this man had done had left him in a crippled position. Jesus knew, of course, what it was, whatever it was. It's not important what happened to him then, but that it happened to him. Something sinful, something that violated the commands of God, something this guy had done left him crippled. And Jesus says to him once he's healed, don't sin anymore. Leave this lifestyle of sin. Don't continue to do things that will make you crippled again or that will harm you. And it reminds us all that sin has consequences. Now the Bible says that all of us have sinned. None of us are perfect before God. And sin has it's consequence. You may have, you may have heard there's a there's a cute little gospel song. I've heard it many times. I've memorized it, but I won't I, I won't sing it for you right now. And you're welcome for that. And the lyrics go something like this: Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will keep you longer than you want to. Stay. You've heard it too. Stay. Sin has 
consequences. Sometimes the consequences are physical. There are sometimes that we can sin against God and there are physical consequences that happen to us. We don't know what happened to this guy, but, but it could have been some act of immorality. It could have been some crime he was committing and he got caught and was, was injured or punished in some way. We don't know exactly what it was, but it, it, it affected him physically. And there may be nobody here today affected physically, outwardly by sin. And Sam, I'm not going to question your voice today, by the way. He's nodding. Say yes. <laughs> but, but, but all of us are impacted by sin physically. By the fact that we age. By the fact that we have health issues. By the fact that we die. All of that is a result of sin coming into the world. Sin has physical consequences, but sin also has spiritual consequences. We've all sinned, and ultimately we discover, as the Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of our sin, the just payment from God to us for our sins, is death. Physical death and spiritual death. All that comes to us because of our sins. And like this man that we just saw on the video, all of us are crippled because of the fact that we are sinners. Secondly, I want you to notice that, that all of us have been chosen by Jesus. That's the good news. When Jesus presents himself as the Savior and says, whoever, anybody who will hear and believe, that person will be saved. That person will be delivered. That person will be forgiven. That person will have eternal life. When he says that, he's applying that to every person. And in verse 21, Jesus says, the, it says, the Son gives life to whom he will. It is Jesus who gives life. It is Jesus who finds us in the midst of our crippled condition by sin. Jesus finds us. We can never find him on our own. He has to come to us. We also need to notice too that that this man like us is healed by grace. It says that he was healed by the pool or at the pool of Bethsaida or Bethesda. Bethsaida, different ways to pronounce that. And it literally means house of grace. That's what the word means. So the pool where this man was healed was called the house of grace. And we're reminded, as, as scholars have pointed out, that it is, it is only by grace that we are saved and made right with God. It is by what He has done for us, not, not what we could ever do for ourselves to be made right with Him. It's only by His grace. Also we notice, this man was healed by sacrifice. There's a mention in John chapter 5 that this pool of Bethsaida was located next to the sheep gate. Now, if you don't know the, the, the geography of Jerusalem, that may or may not mean anything to you. But, but if you picture Jerusalem being a walled city, there's a wall all the way around it. And there were various gates in that wall where different things would happen. Most of those gates were named after what happened in that gate or at that gate. For example, the sheep gate is where the lambs were brought in from the pastures into the city through the sheep gate so that they might be offered for the sacrifices uh, which taught that sin brings death and God provides a substitute. And this pool of grace was right beside the gate where the sheep came in. And we're reminded that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're also reminded here that that this man was healed apart from the law. You and I are healed apart from the law. 
I don't know any of you that, that, that has a, a picture like I do of the Ten Commandments. I, I love the Ten Commandments. They're, they're part of Scripture. God, is, God gave them. He wrote them on the hands of stone and gave them to Charlton Heston. I mean, He gave them to Moses. <laughs> so that we might know God's standards. And they're beautiful. But there's one problem about the Ten Commandments. We can't keep a one of them. And so these Ten Commandments that reveal to us God's standard are also our death warrant. We can't keep the law, any part of it, either outwardly or in our hearts. And God judges our hearts. So He knows everything. And all of us are guilty. So this man was healed, just like we are healed, apart from the law that we could never keep. This man was healed on the Sabbath. And it is on the Sabbath. God gave the Sabbath to us so that we might be rested, so that we might recuperate, so that we might spend time with God in His presence, and that we might worship. And it's on this day, the, the Jewish leaders had so given laws and commands connected to the Sabbath, they had completely obliterated the meaning of it and they accused Jesus of violating the Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath. That's where this conflict was coming from. But it was not the law that healed this man. It was the grace that came by the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we're reminded that it is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that comes to us with His grace and says, if you will only hear and believe, you will be set free and made right. That's the beautiful message that we see. And we also see here that Jesus, uh, that this man, like us, is healed by Jesus alone. When the man was laying there and Jesus said, Do you want to be healed? And the man said, Yes, but there's nobody here to help me. There's nobody here that can help me get to the place where I can be healed. And the same is true today. There are lots of folks that they want to overcome the infirmities of their life. They want to overcome the, the, the sin that has got a hold of them. They want to overcome practices and actions that they've taken that have left them in some form or fashion crippled like this man in the story. And they want somebody to come help. And people may do lots of good things. They may come build a handicap ramp at their door so they can get in and out of the house. They may bring groceries in. They may take up a love offering. They may put a new roof on the house. They may drive them to a doctor's appointment. All those things are helpful, but none of those things will cure. Only Jesus brings the cure. Only Jesus brings salvation. And so we're reminded by the circumstances of this man... That only Jesus brings salvation. Others may can help to a degree, but only Jesus brings the ultimate healing. Now, the rest of this chapter speaks of witnesses or testimony to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. He proclaimed it. He performed a miracle. There's a meaning that goes with it. It evokes some conflict from the Pharisees. But, but the rest of the chapter speaks of four witnesses to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And, and, and we're reminded that, it, that throughout the Gospel of John, over and over again, it reiterates the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. By what He says, by the witnesses, by His miracles. And, and, and let me just run through the list here quickly for you. Verses 30 to 47 speak of these, uh, of these witnesses. The first is John the Baptist in verse number 33. Jesus said, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. You asked about John the Baptist. The people considered him a prophet. They considered him a preacher of the good news. They considered him a spokesman for God. And so Jesus says, John the Baptist, who all the people look at as a prophet, he speaks about me. 
If you were to turn back to John chapter 1 and verse 31, when John was baptizing uh, in, in the Jordan, John says this, For this purpose I came baptizing with water, that Jesus, that He, the Messiah, might be revealed to Israel. John the Baptist recognized that his God-given ministry was to shine the spotlight on the Savior, who was Jesus. So John the Baptist is a witness that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And then secondly, verse 36, the things that Jesus was doing, the works, the miracles, the things that nobody else could do, that only Jesus could do, only the Messiah could accomplish, these things were a testimony witnessing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 36 says... The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Well, what was Jesus doing? We're still pretty early in the Gospel of John. Jesus has turned water into wine. He has healed this man there by the pool. He has healed the, the official son who was in a different city than he was. He had, he had taught. He had begun to, to carry out his ministry. And these things that he did, the the outward uh, actions that he was taking, these things all testified that you can count on what he's saying based on what he's doing. If we were to go back to John chapter 3 and verse number 2 in the story of Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came to see Jesus at night, Nicodemus said this, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Nobody can do these things outside of God. And so the works, the teaching, the miracles, the things Jesus was doing testified that he was indeed the Messiah. Then there's the testimony of God the Father. Verse 37. The Father, Jesus says, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. God himself has indicated that Jesus is his son. You are reminded of the words when Jesus was baptized, when the dove descended upon him, uh, the spirit descended like a dove, and, and the voice from heaven came saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Father testified to Jesus. In, in chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said this, In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And so Jesus testifies, the Father testifies, the works testify, and and, and John the Baptist testifies. And then notice, fourthly, the Scriptures testify. And this is important, because in, in the days of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had not been written yet. In the days of Jesus, there was Genesis through Malachi. That was the Scripture. And all throughout the Scriptures, from Genesis to Malachi, God had been revealing uh, 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 prophecies about who the Messiah would be, where He would be born, when He would be born, what He would do, how He would be identified, so that anybody who knew the Scriptures would be able to, to, to recognize, here is the Messiah. What did the Scriptures say? Jesus said in verse 39, The Scriptures bear witness about me. The Scriptures, they, bear, they talk about me. The things that the, that, the, that the Bible says, the things that the Scripture says about the Messiah, they apply to Jesus, he said. What are some of those? I'm going to give you a very brief list of some of the things in the part of the Bible we call the Old Testament that was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. I'm going to give you a short list of some of the things that we find in the Old Testament that would identify the Messiah 
when he comes. I'll be very quick so you can't write these down. We'll have time. In Psalm 16, we find the resurrection. In Psalm 22, we find the Messiah will be forsaken, pierced, and vindicated. Psalm 118, we find that the Messiah is the cornerstone, but he is rejected. Daniel 9, he will come at a certain time. In Isaiah 52 and 53, he will be a suffering servant, and by his stripes we would be healed. In Deuteronomy 8, he'll be a prophet like Moses. In Malachi 4, he'll be preceded by Elijah. In Zechariah 9, he'll come riding a donkey. In Hosea 11, he'll be called out of Egypt. In Psalm 2, he'll be called God's son. In Zechariah 11, he'll be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In Daniel 7, he'll be called the son of man. In Genesis 22, he'll be a willing sacrifice. In Exodus 12, he'll be the Passover lamb. In Micah 5, he'll be born in Bethlehem. In Psalm 110, he'll be greater than David. In 2 Samuel 7, he'll be a descendant of David. In Isaiah 9, he'll be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. In Numbers 21, he'll be lifted up, a picture of the cross. In Ruth 4, he'll be a kinsman redeemer. In Psalm 69, he'll be the righteous sufferer. In Isaiah 9, he'll be a great light. In Isaiah 35, he'll demonstrate his identity by signs of healing. Right on. And that, that, my friends, is a very brief list of all that the Old Testament says would identify the Savior when He comes. And Jesus fulfills every last one. He's the only one in all of history who could fulfill them because He's the only one who was the Messiah come to earth. Well, about these scriptures... And if anybody knew the scriptures, it should be the the Jewish leaders. It should be the Pharisees. Yeah, Jesus said, you're searching the scriptures and they talk about me, but you reject me. You're blind. Listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees. it's, It's no wonder they were riled up. In verse 38, Jesus says they refused him and missed God. In verse 39, he says they searched the scriptures for eternal life, but could not see what was right in front of them. In verse 40, they would not come to Jesus. In verse 42, they had no love of God within them. In verse 43, they would not receive Him as Messiah. Verse 44, they sought glory from others, but not from God. And in verse 47, they would not believe Moses, even though Moses was speaking about Jesus. And what do we learn from that? Don't be like that. The evidence in the Scriptures are clear. The evidence from the miracles that Jesus performed is clear. The evidence from God the Father is clear. The evidence of changed lives like mine and like many of you down through history is clear. Jesus is the Son of God and all who hear and believe are set free and forgiven and have eternal life. That's the message. And the miracles He performs only serve to solidify that message. And ultimately comes the cross. As as the band is coming up for our last song, I want to ask you to consider just a couple of things about this message and about its meaning and what it means to you and to me. He says we're turning through one chapter a week in the Gospel of John. And I want to tell you this very honestly that it's very difficult because there's this much material in each chapter and I've got this much time. And I know I'm taking this much time, but you'll forgive me for that, right? There's so much there about Jesus. And every page we turn, 
solidifies what, what, this, what John tells us at the end of the book. In John chapter 20 and verse 31, John writes these words. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Why is it that we have the Gospel of John? So that we might know and that we might believe. And so we looked already at John 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and today is 5 and next week is 6 and all the way through the end of the Gospel of John we're going to look so that you and I might believe and that by, believe, and that by believing we might have eternal life. And so I want to speak to you today for just a moment who are believers. Like me, you've put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to do a couple of things. I want to encourage you, first of all, to look back on that time when you became a believer and a follower of Christ. For some in this room, that's decades ago. And that's fine. But think back to that time when you were a young child or you were a teenager, or you were in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, however old you were. Think back to that time and thank God for that message of salvation that reached your ears and reached your heart. And after you do that, I want you to, 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 to thank God for opportunities to know Him and walk with Him during this time of life. Because this time of life will come to an end. Hopefully at the end of a long and productive life. But it's going to come to an end. And so ask the Lord to help you make the most of every day that you have for His glory. Because He has saved you and forgiven you and given you eternal life. How can He use you to tell somebody else, to invite somebody to know Him, to invite somebody to come to church, to to take an invite card and give it to them, to share the message of the gospel, to share your story of how you came to faith in Christ, to find an area in the church to serve, to to, to find some way to, to give of your time or your treasure, your talents, to do something for the glory of God because of all that He's done for you. That's my challenge for you today on this first Sunday of the new year. Be the person who has been set free by the gospel. But I also know this, in a room this size, even at church, there there are some who have never trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It might be some of our youngest people here. It might be some of the oldest people here. It might be somebody who's just walked in the door for the first time today. It might be somebody who's been here for decades. But never come to that place. Oh yeah, you've come to church. Maybe you've read the Bible. You even came to the candlelight service and held up the candle. What a great service that was. You may have put money in the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. You may have changed a diaper back in the preschool ministry. By the way, thank you for all those things you may have done. But none of those will get you to heaven. They help in doing the good things. But those good things will never take you to heaven. So if you're here today... And you may have done all those things, but somewhere in your heart you know it's never become real. It's never locked in. It's never become absolute that you know that you know that you have trusted Christ. Here's the good news. Today, just like the day by the pool for the man who was healed, just like every other day since the days of the Scriptures, today the Bible says it's the day of salvation. Today is the day to believe. Today is the day... To do exactly what Jesus said. To be a whoever. By hearing the message of Jesus. And believing and making it real and making it personal for yourself. And and having eternal life. It's saying, Lord Jesus, I know like everybody else, I'm a sinner and I'm under your judgment. But I also know that you died in my place and for my sins. 
and were raised on the third day. And I believe that, and I receive that into my heart, and I thank you, Jesus, for saving me. If that's your desire today, make that your prayer. Even as we're singing this last song, make that your prayer. And after the service concludes in just a few moments, find either me or one of our other pastors that are in here. Shay's in here. Austin's in here. Joe's around upstairs somewhere. Our deacons are around. Find somebody that you know uh, and say, help me to to understand what this means and and help me. And we'd be glad to offer you words of encouragement and prayer. Make that your prayer today. Let me invite you to stand with me, if you will. After After I pray, we're going to sing our last song. And then we'll be dismissed out. I want to thank you for your grace and being here today and for listening so kindly to the words of Scripture. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful message of salvation. Thank you for the wonderful message that Jesus is our Savior. The one who will judge us is the one who has set us free from our sins with the cross and the resurrection. And you make yourself perfectly clear, Lord, so that we don't have to wonder who you are. And we don't have to wonder what we have to do. And I thank you for all of that, Lord. And just as this man in the Bible experienced physical healing, Lord, may we experience spiritual healing. And may we live in that freedom every day and glorify you with all that we say and all that we do as we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.